This episode of Dig Me Out. We don't get enough negative feedback. Rock was no longer a priority. I would consider that I thought Lucy was the secret weapon of the band, but I don't think there's any secret to it. You can tell there's more there for her to give, and she doesn't really push it. Oh crap, Bob Mo produced this. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Timonichi. Joining me once again, my co-host... And bandwagon Indians fan, Jay Ziak. Jay, how does it feel to be back on the bandwagon? Oh, stop it. Now the Indians have a positive number of wins in the... I decided to start following this team again before they are actually winning. So Something about the the NFL strike. Back to the Charles Beagie years or the John Farrell years? I think the the NFL lockout has made me... uh, more interested in baseball again oh god that's like a, a somebody was addicted to drugs going from you know coke to heroin because they can't get any coke they go i just i'll just use heroin i guess oh, hey i'm gonna enjoy it while i can i actually won i won three free lunches out of this with a i did uh had a bet with a cincinnati fan i worked with and uh it was if it it's a sweep the, the person that wins gets three lunches. If it's a two-to-one series, then you get two. I got three. So I'm, I'm loving life right now. Nice. Hey, we've got a special guest tonight. Joining us, returning, a returning, a first returning guest, Mr. Chip Midnight. Chip, how are you this evening? I'm doing good, gentlemen. Um, you may have heard once or twice us reference triple fast action on this podcast since we were on um, yeah yeah i seem to remember you guys really like the long songs that stretch out is that, <laughs> is that right uh that might yeah. have been a point of contention on some recent albums that we reviewed that's um, all right it's all was, good it was it was merely our love for that album was tempered by what we might feel as are a bit indulgent uh, production choice, such as making a three-minute-long song into a five-and-a-half. But so I don't mean to—I don't mean to throw you right into the into this podcast. But um, Triple Fast Action has a connection with the band that we're going to talk about tonight. Bring it. Well, they, they toured together. Oh. I guess you know, that's, that's my, the, that's I have four pages but. of notes on on Magnapop, and I, I'm not kidding about that. Um, <laughs> And I don't have that information. So bully, hopefully they're double spaced. Fully to you, sir. No, it's single spaced. It looks like I did a book report on Magnapop. I wanted to be really thorough. Little Timmy, tell us about Magnapop. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna get into the history. I'm gonna try to keep it condensed, but there's a lot of information here because there's a lot of stuff that I had no idea about, as this was a band that I had never listened to back in the day. So. When I discovered all this info, I was like, oh, I gotta put that in, and I gotta put that in, and I gotta put that in. So, Magnapop, formed in 1989 in Atlanta, Georgia. However, their roots go back even farther to the Atlanta, Georgia music scene of the late 70s and early 80s, where Linda Hopper, a vocalist of Magnapop, befriended 
fellow University of Georgia student Michael Stipe in an art design class. Yes. Oh. That Michael Stipe. Um, she played in Wait, some which bands. One? What? Huh? Wait, which Michael Stipe? That Michael Stipe. The Michael Stipe. From REM. You might, mm. you might know him from a little band called Rapid Eye Movement. They were actually in a band together called OOK. It was Linda Stipe. Uh, no, sorry. It was Linda Stipe, Michael's sister, and uh, Linda Hopper. So two Lindas. If they were smart, they would have been Band of Lindas, like Band of Susan. <laughs> had, had four Susans. In the band. And what were they thinking? Yeah, I know. They totally blew right that opportunity. There. Um, in 1989, Ruthie Morris, who had... Wait a minute, wait a minute. What? Did, it, did you not uncover that OOK had a... Oh! Yes! There you go. Matthew Sweet was the guitar yes. player later in OOK. Yeah. Good call. I Does anybody have recordings of this band? Yep. I think they might have put something out. It might. Oh, uh, they released put, an EP. I mean, yeah. In 1987. Huh. Oh no, I'm sorry, they didn't. They that project ended in '84, and then Linda Hopper joined a second band called Holiday. That was the one that released an EP in 1987. As far as I know, OOK never released anything officially. So now we'll jump to Ruthie Morris. Ruthie Morris joined the band, or moved to Atlanta from Palm Beach, Florida, 1989. She played a guitar in a band called The Pockets. They, uh, Hopper and Morris met. They started um, working together, and they couldn't find a drummer or a bass player, and finally recruited Tim Lee and former OOK drummer David McNair and uh, March of 1990 that was when the original lineup got together uh, the original name was Homemade Sister from a line in the movie Baby Doll and they released a single called Rip the Wreck Mary on Safety Net Records in 1990 uh, they changed their name to then Swell but found out that there was already a band called Swell so they changed their name called to Swell Dopa. Uh, you're gonna say like Swell GA or Swell. Swell US. US. No, Swell Dopa. I don't know what that. While they were named Swell, they played a show in Athens that Michael Stipe attended. Old friend of the band, Michael Stipe. He approached them afterwards and offered to produce some demos at a studio in Athens. They played a show at the NME, uh, con or NME conference in New York in 91 and were introduced on stage by Stipe. Now, this is 91, so this is, you know, automatic for the people era Michael Stipe. This is not like green. I mean, this is big time Michael Stipe here. He's uh, in full Jesus Christ mode at this full point. Full Jesus Christ mode, yeah. At this point, they started getting uh, club dates for... Uh, across the pond in the Netherlands and it was at this point somewhere it doesn't say exactly but at some point in there they changed their name from Swell and then Swell Dopa to Magna Pop. They signed to Played Again Sam Records and released the Sugarland EP and then the Magna Pop demo album in the Netherlands in 1992. Uh, the first self-titled album included four of the 1990 Michael Stipe demos 
and that was released on Caroline Records in the United States. Uh, they were on a couple of compilations after that. They recorded an EP called Kiss by Mouth, which was released in Europe. And then uh, after touring some festivals and playing with uh, Juliana Hatfield on tour, they played uh, a ton of like Redding. They played uh, Pop in 1982, the big pop festival over in the UK. And they did a John Peel session. At that point, they played New York City at CBGB's, the now dead CBGB's, and Bob Mould of Husker Du, which I believe he was transitioning into Sugar at this point, saw them, and they originally asked uh, Dave Barb, who was from Athens, Georgia, to produce their first major label album, but he declined, so Mould stepped in, and they recorded in Austin, Texas in 93, and that album became the album we're reviewing tonight, Hot Boxing, which was released in Europe on Played Again Sam Records and in the U.S. domestically in July of 94 on Priority Records, home of Easy e <laughs> Also home of uh, Dig Me Out, Favorites, Son of Elvis. Oh, shit. Yeah. You can't get away from that, though. Uh, two singles were released. Uh, slowly, slowly, which spent seven weeks on the charts, for, uh, peaking at number 25 in 1994 on the U.S. Modern Tracks, and then Lay It Down, which uh, did not chart. They toured the United States with the Lemonheads, um, played some festivals, released an emotional EP called Big Bright Cherry in 94, and... In 95, the original drummer McNair left the band, uh, and they brought in the Uber uh, Sessions drummer Josh Freeze to play on their follow-up al follow album, Rubbing Doesn't Help. Hmm. The, that dude's played with everybody. Yeah, he has played with everybody. Um, so Rubbing Doesn't Help... Did that come out? I'm listening. I'm missing that information in, in all of my notes here. You know what? This would be a good time to have Chip um, chime in because Chip, if I recall, didn't you write an article about Bang the Pop for Moo Magazine when about rubbing uh, doesn't help back in the day? Yeah, um, and that was actually the second time that I interviewed the band. Um, I interviewed the bass player Shannon. I believe it was a phone interview that for rubbing doesn't help i had interviewed the entire band at the cleveland agora when they were on tour with sugar and velocity girl okay for and that was for the hot boxing tour gotcha and then um the, what, the interview rubbing, doesn't, rubbing doesn't help came rubbing out doesn't probably help 90, 97 ish yeah okay okay los angeles musician mark hosgay auditioned for the band in 95 and became the group's, the, the group's permanent drummer. Then Magnapop supported R.E.M. on the Monster Tour, uh, continued playing in the United States and Europe, um, played Australia and Japan, hosted 120 minutes on July 7th of 96. Hopper and Morris then moved to Los Angeles from Georgia and uh, leaving the rest of the band back in uh, Georgia. Um, well, Posgay Wood already was less, from Los Angeles State. Band. 
Um, they played some shows in 97 in support of Throwing Muses. And Hoske quit that summer and was replaced by former Lifter drummer Johnny Rosas. Uh, they recorded some demos. Um, but at this point, Priority was done with their rock division. So all the bands... Rock, rock was no longer a priority. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. oh! Nice. If I'm not wrong, I think Priority was really into like those uh, like big hits of the 90s and power ballad type. Oh, wow. They probably made a ton of money off of that crap. Yeah. They also had the Rugburns was uh, on Priority. And at one point, the Goo Goo Dolls were... Um, not on there, but I think they were distributed through Priority. So Hopper and Morris continued to play into 1999. Um, various drummers and bass players are uh, added to the band and then removed from the band. Um, in 2003, after essentially being on hiatus for a few years, the band re-enters the studio and records with the result being 2005's Mouthfeel on Amy Ray, of who I believe is from Indigo Girl. Her record label, uh, Demon Records, is a Damien record. D-A-E-M-O-N. Is that Damien or Demon? Not sure. Anybody want to chime in on that? No. Okay. And then... In 2006, the band toured Belgium, Netherlands, returned to Atlanta to work on the follow-up to Mouthfeel, which ended up being Chase Park, released in September of 2009, which they released on their own label, Craft Records. And that gets us up to current Magnapop, the longest history of any band we've ever Crap, I almost fell asleep. I apologize to everyone, and now, <laughs> wake up! Um, I did want to mention one little note here. I mentioned that they toured with Juliana Hatfield. Juliana Hatfield actually wrote a song for Ruthie Morris called Ruthless, dedicated to her guitar playing. And it ended up as a B-side um, for one of Juliana Hatfield's singles. Apparently they... Ruthie made a big impression. So, let's get into this record. Let's get into Hot Boxing. I love the title. Hmm? I love the title. Second only to Foxy Boxing. This best boxing title. Um, Let's start with Chip, because Chip, obviously you have a history with this band. Um... I'm assuming that you possibly revisited it in preparation for this podcast. Maybe to I did. Notes. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think my history and how I got into them, and I'm I'm guessing, um, you know, back in that time period, I was really into Baruch Assault and other female fronted bands. So I, I suspect that this CD kind of either heard a single or, or read about it or something. That's how I got into them. Came out in what 90, 94? Uh, Seventeen years later, I think I'm a little more critical of it today than I probably was back at the time. Um, 
I was going to say that I thought Ruthie was the secret weapon of the band, but I don't think there's any secret to it. Um, like, I love her <laughs> guitar playing on this record. I, mm-hmm. it, the thing to me that I think is um, the thing that I'm revisiting it, are the vocals. And I feel like they're like, like Linda kind of holds back a little bit, or maybe a lot. Mm-hmm. The vocals to me don't really match the intensity of some of the music. Mm-hmm. Aren't they produced but overall, weird too? But it's kind of funny because, I mean, it's funny how you can not listen to a record for so long and then go back and instantly. I mean, it reminds me of um, that time period totally. Like every song I, I can remember listening to and I can remember kind of. It brings back certain memories. Now, Jay, you were agreeing with him with regards to both the guitar playing and the vocal playing. What? What did? Yeah, you I think. Um, I don't know. Were you familiar with Magna Pop before? No, not at all. Okay. And um, and I purposely, I try my hardest not to. If I haven't heard of the band when I get the album to review, I try hard not to learn anything about them until you tell me about it on the show. Um, and part of that is just. It allows me, when I'm listening to it, to just evaluate it for what it is and not try to, you know, put things on top of it from what I learned. So, you know, right away, as I'm getting into this album, the vocal stands out to me. Um, Is just tonally, I think her voice is is really, really pretty unique and and a little bit different. Um, Just because it's, I think it's so deep and it's pretty rich. But you're right. You can tell there's more there for her to give, and she doesn't really push it. She kind of just stays, um, you know, kind of reserved, and she doesn't really um, um, do much vocally. It's also produced strange. The, the vocals are um, a lot of the album. They're actually panned hard left and right and doubled, which is a weird way to mix vocals. It kind of makes them. I think your point, Chip where the, the guitar the rest of the band is kind of getting louder and, and getting more intense you want the vocal not only performance wise to kind of match that but also production wise you kind of want it to kind of uh, blend in with the music and it really can't because of the way that it's mixed it's it's always separated out really but in a weird strange way um and the thing that that i think i that finally grounded me on where they're coming from on this album is when I first started listening to it, I, I was thinking, okay, maybe this is like a Brute Assault kind of thing as I'm getting a few songs into it. And then it hit me like, brick. Uh, this is this is a, a female version of Sugar. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea they had... They, you're, you're saying Bob Moe produced this? Yeah. I had no idea produced this. I had no idea they toured with them. So all this is like really cool to hear because I'm, because I'm I guess I'm not nuts after all. I'm like I'm thinking that, but in this another way I'm like, well, but there's something about it that's very not them. But the phrase, the phrasing she uses, and just her sense of, um, I think vocally how she's approaching it, I think are very reminiscent of Bob Mould. Um, the thing that's off though is, um, I think of particularly Bob Mould stuff. It's all very tight. Um, I think he even uses like a lot of drum machines and stuff, so everything's very precise and tight and really compressed. And this stuff isn't like that, especially. It, and he's like really good at doubling his own voice to the point where you can barely tell it's doubled. And she's not that good at it. And the way that it's mixed in this makes it even more apparent that she's not that good at it. 
it's kind of like two voices all the time in both of your ears through most of these songs, which is kind of odd. Um, the other thing about this album that, that made me think that either they were really in to uh, Bob Mould or uh, he had something to do with it, it makes sense, is the snare sound is it i think it might be a trigger and the reason i'm bringing that up is because there'll be some fills on this where it sounds like you can tell it's a, a really bad trigger because it's always the same velocity so you end up with the sound that kind of sounds like a machine gun it's like and uh there's some parts in the songs because of the way the vocals mix where the snare drum is like in your face and you pay way too much attention to it and there's actually one song on here, I think it's uh, track 10, where the drum beat, the snare, the snare is just like so obnoxious. I could, I can barely even make it to this song because it's the sound of it and just the space that that it's given and the volume it has. It's just like it takes over everything. That was one of those things where I think he used to use drum triggers on some of his stuff and sort of I, I was wondering if they were influenced by that and trying to do that kind of thing or what, what was going on there. But that's one of those things being a drummer, it sort of stood out to me as being very odd. And there's ports where you don't notice, but when they go to do a fill, it really leaps out as like sounding like a keyboard drum snare or something. Really weird. But I think, you know, overall, I think this is for me, it's a band that's missing one element there's just both from a production standpoint and from a songwriting standpoint there's just i don't know if it's another guitar or just another level of intensity or just i don't know some of the songs have a part in them like the, i really like the verse and i like the chorus but there'll be a pre-chorus in there that i really don't like at all it kind of loses me so it's kind of like on a lot of levels i, know, I felt like it was missing just one piece. I think the guitar tones are awesome. I think the rhythm playing is really good guitar-wise, so I'm totally on board with with um, Ruthie's guitar stuff. I think it's really strong, but there's there needs to be that other guitar that has the texture to it or, or a lead that's really... Like, there are some leads on here, but they're kind of not that remarkable. It's really the rhythm stuff that's I think, the quality. What, what were you thinking, Tim? When I was... I was trying to place the vocals, and I hate when we review a band that has a female singer and we instantly gravitate towards comparing to other female singers. It's like mm -hmm. not taking the band as a whole into account. Well, I actually oh. got to the same thing with you. I listened to this, I'm like, this kind of reminds me of Sugar. And then I realized after reading the history, oh crap, Bob Moe produced this. Mm -hmm. The thing that's missing from Sugar is... There are a lot of songs, and, and even in the Bob Mould solo stuff where it's heavier rock, where the guitars will be pretty abrasive in terms of loudness, and his mm -hmm. vocal will be pretty low. And he does mm -hmm. that double track, so it sounds like more spread out and ethereal than um, some of the Husker Du stuff, or Husker Du, however you want to pronounce it. The thing, or the, the the singer that most 
sounded like what Linda Hopper uh, was going for was kind of a cross between that Liz Fair, um, this disaffected, you know, indie rock of the, the early 90s. I could kind of hear her in some of her uh, phrasing and, and whatnot, but also with like touches every once in a while of like Joan Jett where it should give a little bit of attitude. And I was like, oh, 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 there it is. Like, if you could only bring that back, like, a little bit more attitude. Mm -hmm. I really feel like, when you listen to Ruthie's playing, especially the rhythm stuff, it's not that far off. And then, it, and I'll get to why it's really hit home with me. It's not that far off from, like, the runaway. And that it's really just hard rock in a lot, in a lot of the places that yeah. she's playing. In track five, Piece of Cake, there's, like, a guitar gallop going on during the verses yeah yeah and it's it's you know straight out of like you know maiden or something like that i mean not that the rest of the song sounds like that but you know you didn't have a lot of bands in the 90s that were using the galloping beat on the, on the rhythm section um with the bass and the guitars a special motion for the brain to generate one thing and this is the band's first album so i'm willing to cut them some slack and say you know in the same way with the 360s or some of the other bands reviewed where you go well there's it's not all there but there's some cool elements and kind of want to hear what they're going to do next um it's that the vocaling the vocal is not 100 there it doesn't have the energy that this the songwriting really demands and especially the playing um, mm -hmm. I totally hear you on the drums. I thought that that was the weakest point, and it makes sense that the drummer left after this album, because not only were the drums kind of unremarkable, but they really didn't add a whole lot to what was going on. But, it, but at the same point, the way that that they're produced and recorded, they were they were uh, attract way too much attention. Right, and I'm wondering if the, part of the reason why they had to do that was really based on an inconsistency with the drummer and that's why he left probably yeah, i mean know, Tim, that's go ahead because oh, i don't know if you if you uncovered this when you were researching them but um from what i remember the drummer uh i don't know if he was asked to leave or, or work himself out of the band I, i'm not sure that it was an amicable split i think he was given the boot yeah that's basically what it sounded like I mean, this could have been, you can go back and actually add a snare drum after, and that could have been a, something that they did, and that's why it sounds so weird. It'll basically, like, you can tell it to trigger a you know, digital snare drum, and it'll listen to the track performed, and lay it on top. And I'm wondering if, because that's one of the things, like, if you're not a good drummer, you'll hear it sort of in the way that the, some of the snare stuff is played, and then obviously your timing. It almost makes me wonder if, somebody went back 
they had to go through and like do a lot of work on these drum tracks and to get them to sound good and stuff. They're, they are definitely, the performance isn't great, but what makes it even worse is that there's times when it's way too much the focus. Um, so it's like, you got a bad drummer, bury him. Yeah. Come to the front. I, I wanted to bring up the second song, Texas, which is, yeah. it's a little bit different than a lot of the stuff on the album. It has an acoustic guitar picking, a bit softer. It's actually an odd song, I think, for putting second. Seems like that should have been the third or fourth track because I, I feel like the opening tracks slowly, slowly is a pretty good opener, and then like actually retreats in terms of energy and then brings it back. Um, so, and I have a little bit of an issue with just the length of this album. Even though it's only 42 minutes, there's 14 songs. I kind of feel like it's two or three songs too long, especially with the longest song being the last song. It's four or five. Wait a minute! Songs wait a minute! Long. Wait a minute! Triple Fast Action songs are too long. These songs are like two, two and a half minutes. <laughs> well, the, the last song the is balance, 4.30. But there's too many of them. There's just too many of them. And I started, by the time I got to song 12, I was like, is this not over yet? Like, I, I do want to get I'm back to the second song. I got a really weird vibe from that song, and I was trying to place it. And I finally, Are you talking about track two? Track two, Texas. I sort of pinned it down that it has a almost like the early bangles like paisley underground sound to it not just in her singing but just in the overall like there's a little touch of like almost psychedelicness to or psychedelicness but a psychedelia to it it's it's kind i mean it's, it's a weird song in terms of you know there's mostly up-tempo energy based songs throughout this record and that one's pretty blatant in that it's not and um i just wondered what you guys what your reactions were to that song because i thought it was I, I liked it but i also thought it was kind of an oddball um on the record i wrote down i don't I, i'm i remember the acoustic intro i'm trying to remember how the rest of it goes but my notes say uh guided by voices maybe just the yeah. way that her phrasing worked um worked out on that was reminding me of them at that, that point but it does build up a little bit there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't match the it doesn't match the intensity of like the first three or four songs. Right. Now it's an odd place to put it. It seemed like it it could be a good like track seven or eight. Right. On a and maybe ten or it, I mean that might have even been that might even have been a good introduction, a good single, before you like introduce the harder stuff to fans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it wasn't released as a single, so. What now, we... Call me crazy. I don't know the vocals, and maybe it's because I've seen them live and and maybe from a distance. Linda kind of reminds me of of this person, but um, 
there's something about Linda, either her voice or, or her looks or something that I always I always thought of Belinda Carlisle and kind of early go-go stuff. That's a good comparison. I hadn't thought about that. And like I said, it might not even be in the vocals. It might be that just from a, they don't, I mean, you wouldn't confuse them for each other, but they kind of have a similar look. So listen to this album. I got the sense that this band was much better live than, than what this album represents. I mean, you, you're saying you saw them live, Chip? I did. Um, I saw them in some weird situations. I mean, I, I can I can remember seeing them twice. I probably saw them a few more times. But um, uh, like I said, I saw them open for Bob or for Sugar and Velocity Girl, and uh, it, it's funny having this conversation, going back and thinking how close they were to Sugar because at the time um, they were kind of this. Nobody really knew them, and Sugar was dead. The Agora probably sold out, you know, probably 1,200 people. And, um, you know, they went on first at like 7.30, and there's probably like 100 people there. And it just, I'm sure you guys have been to those kind of shows at like the Newport where the opening band doesn't make a dent at all. Nobody remembers them. Nobody's there to see them. Mm-hmm. And it was just like one of those type situations. So um, this is a good point in which I can ask you, you got to talk to Ruthie. Did you bring up this show from uh, back when, uh, when you were when you were interviewing with her? Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's go to that. So, uh, first of all, welcome to the Dig Me Out podcast. Um, Thank you. This is the historic episode because you're the first person that we've talked to. <laughs> so, all the people listening, the uh, you'll be the answer to the trivia question when we hit like the hundredth episode. Okay. <laughs> So before we uh, dig into hotboxing, which is a CD that we reviewed in this podcast, um, can you catch us up on on what you're doing today? Um, well, we actually are still making records. We um, we put out a record in 2009, so 2009 but 2010 last year in Europe. So we we're sort of now in between, just writing for another one. We we still tour in Europe, so that's a good thing. Yeah. What about? I mean. I would, Obviously, Magnet Pop's probably not your uh, your primary gig no, these days, is it? No, it is not. I'm actually, um, I was a dog groomer. I groom dogs, but I've gone back to school. So I'm in school right now for radiology, and I will come out um, probably working in CT. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. So, far away from music, so. Right. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how you hooked up with Bob Mould and that whole relationship? Well, we met him, um, we did a festival, our very first festival ever um, in Europe. We, we shared a backstage dressing room with, with Bob Mould and Nirvana. It was just really strange, but great. And that's when we first met Bob. And um, we had connections to Bob because he had friends from Athens. So um, one, of, one of his good friends was our good friend. So that's sort of how it came to be. And then when we needed a producer for the record, um, he said he wanted to do it, which you know, we would have never had the nerve to ask him, so that was wonderful. Right. What kind of influence did he have in the studio when you guys were working? Oh my God, he, the influence is so strong. That record sounds like a Bob Mould record in many ways. I mean, well, it sounds like um, what your friend said, like a sugar record. We kind of got put through the sugar machine. It was really interesting the way he, d- he did things, and he's very methodical and, uh, and knows what he's looking for. He's got a really fine-tuned ear. Right. 
So he would do, we'd do lots of guitar takes to make a really big guitar sound, like over and over the same part. And he would stack it. Right. And that's, that's the sugar sound. It's, it's, but it's awesome. Yeah. It's a great technique. So things like that, um, yeah, he was. Was there things that he did that you may have done differently with a different producer? Was there things that he did with, what you just said about the guitars, but uh, vocals, drums, bass, was there anything that, that he he brought in that, I wouldn't say altered your sound, but did something different with what you guys were used to? Well, our first record was uh, produced by Michael Stipe, who, um, you know, he was really good He with just sort of being a really positive influence and, and, and just kind of brought out... I don't know, I guess his confidence in, in us brought up our own confidence, but it wasn't the same mechanical ability as, as Bob Mould had. He, um, um, what would I do differently? Or would I have done something differently? I guess when, I, when you asked me that, I thought about the th fact that Bob uses a click track for everything, and, mm -hmm. it, and it makes a good record. And I don't know if you know what a click track is, but it's, it's a drummer's nightmare. It's playing to this uh, metronome, basically, and... That was something that maybe, I don't know, it, it kind of hurt our drummer a lot. <laughs> it killed him on that record, but maybe that would be the only thing, because he, 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 he got the best out of us, I have to say. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned that, because that was uh, kind of what I was getting into is, um, like I said, so, so Jay and Tim come from being college DJs and having been in a couple of bands. So they, they were commenting more on the drums than I would have maybe picked up, mm -hmm. and saying that the drums probably the weak, weak spot in the band? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, our drummer uh, g trying to play with a click track was really difficult for him, and he had some other things going on at the time in his personal life that was making things really hard, and I felt for him. He really struggled in that record. Right. So it's interesting that they picked up on that. Shannon kind of brought a little bit of like a punk background into the band. Is that, mm -hmm. is that right? Yeah, he definitely did. He brought like a real drive. Yeah. You know, a bottom end drive. And, um, you know, through the, through the internet, you know, Linda's, Linda's background is well documented. Um, but I don't remember much kind of what your background before joining Magnapop was. I really haven't been in many bands. I, I was in one in Florida that wasn't really a band. We played at a bar once. So. Yeah. But this was kind of my first band. What kind of music was that, though? Was it. You know what? Um, it was kind of garage band. That's yeah. what it was. It was two guitars and a drum. Okay. <laughs> what kind of guitar players did, were you were you influenced by or did you admire when you were kind of starting out playing guitar? Well, I mean, my main, the person that I get, I like to listen to the most would be Keith Richards, but I'd have to say I probably, playing-wise, would be Johnny Ramone. Just yeah. Playing along with the Ramones records. I, the benefit is huge. You just learn how to play guitar immediately. <laughs> right. You do, and and you learn. And when I say that, I mean the harder parts of guitar to get tone and attack. So um, I don't know. I guess like anything that had attack, I was definitely interested in. But I like the Smiths too. Right. I want to say that I remember Shannon kind of being the crazy punk rock guy on stage. Mm -hmm. um, Linda seemed to be a little passive on stage. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was, there was high energy and low energy. Yeah, definitely. And it, I mean, even if you think about the music, it, that's pretty much the way you could de define. Linda's words are very kind of abstract, you know, whereas I would say maybe the, the music is pretty driving and straightforward. Right. 
so I mean it kind of has those elements play play a part in the songs right as well I don't know maybe I was somewhat of the bridge between both elements because I you know I love pop music and I love punk rock as well so probably was helpful in that direction right with um what has it been it's 17 years since Hot Boxing came out god probably <laughs> probably how do you feel about it today and do you still listen to it well, I haven't listened to it only because of, you know, I've heard those songs so many times that I don't think I ever listened to it objectively. Right. But, um, I, you know, I do, I still like the record, it, uh, you know, so much. I'm so proud of it. I think it has a great sound, and I think it holds up. Right. I do. I mean, it, it has an energy to it when you put it on that, that I think you still feel. And yeah. I mean, I think if you could have asked me 17 years ago, would that have made me happy to hear that, yes, that, that would have been the goal is for it to have energy. And that energy you can still feel when you play it, because you know, that's the rewards of playing records over and over. Yeah, absolutely. It would kind of be easy to call you like the secret weapon in the band, but you really weren't a secret. I mean, <laughs> my favorite part about Magna Pops music was always your guitar playing. Oh, thanks. We were wondering, as, as, uh, as releases became a little bit fewer and farther between, were you presented with other opportunities to join other bands? Were, did any other bands reach out and try to get you to become their weapon? Well, not too much. Not too much. And I really, I think that Linda and I always felt like we never kind of got to complete what we started out. So, I mean, I did, and I even had another band when I lived in Seattle. I had a, a two-piece band with a drummer. But I don't know. There's something about completion, finishing what you started. So... I mean, no, not really. It wasn't like that. I tried. I tried a few different things, but but nothing felt like the right direction either. Right. It's funny. You would have thought I would. I mean, I would have thought I would have joined another band, but I never did. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I did eventually, but, but I always sort of knew it would have to be when I started. Let's put it that way. I'm not really kind of the guitar player you just that just joins a band. Like you weren't going to join Hole. No. Oh. <laughs> Never, right. never. But no, I, I, I don't think that's me in a band. I'm not that. Per although that person is important. Right. That's not me. Right. I'm the one that's gonna be like wanting to sing or, or whatever it is. <laughs> right. So hotboxing was like a good introduction. I know it wasn't your first record, but it was a good introduction to like kind of the radio play and MTV. Uh huh. And then rubbing doesn't help really seem to be that next step. I mean. It, from my perspective, it wasn't like a parallel path. Like, it definitely, your, your profile was increased after that. Uh, things just went, with our record company, things went so wrong that I, it just so, is so sad because we really felt like we were on the verge of getting to where we wanted to be. Right. But on, on another side of it, it was just getting so complicated, and they were splintering, and we were really on a European label, so we were li uh, licensed to an American label and they were having all these problems back and forth and wanting us to be either be in Europe more or America. It was just very difficult to where they just dropped the whole thing. Right. And they dropped the whole label. So we just, uh, yeah, God, so, so depressing. <laughs> I don't know if I realized it. So it was Priority put out Rubbing Doesn't Help as well? Uh-huh, they okay. did. Um, and I didn't know if it was a label thing, but it also seemed like right around that period is when, like, the corn and the biscuits started taking over the music world. It really world. did. I remember what you're talking about, yeah. And it seemed like it didn't matter. I mean, because I, I, I think I got into Magna Pop because I was a fan of Peruca Salt. Or there was, 
the breeders, or there's, I'm sure there was some sort of connection where I heard one female fronted band and it led to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like it almost dropped out after that. Like, Absolutely it has. When I mean, if I turn on, well, you can't even find alternative radio anymore, but it's a rare event if you hear, um, well, there, I guess because it doesn't exist, but I, I never hear female sounding driven bands. But I can say on college radio I do. Maybe they get a little more action in college, but right. for the most part, it's not like it was. You were seeing so much and, and so much high-profile women. It was it was very interesting, but you're not seeing that at all anymore, I right. don't think. And it also seemed, and once again, I don't know, but it seemed like Lilith there may have done more harm towards female rock bands than it did yeah. good. Well, because it really was a folk music festival. Right. It really wasn't... And then it kind of got really twisted where they added um, R&B and pop kind of, I think Rihanna, play, Rihanna played in, I'm not sure what her name, her name is Rihanna. Yeah. Her, she played at the latest one and that seemed odd to me, but I know exactly what you're saying. It kind of categorized you into sort of soft music. Right. It did, and it wasn't like a normal mix, like a festival. So well, for that matter, festivals have gone by the wayside. Right where you could easily see a lot of different bands and decide what you like. That hasn't, that's really fallen off. Were you pretty cognizant at the time that all this was happening, that, that that's why it was happening to Magna Pop, or was it, was it due to the label stuff? I mean, did you guys ever kind of give up or feel no, like you it was up? all, it was, you know, I've got to tell you, we had a, a, something we signed with our label that locked us in with a seven-year deal where um, if somebody wanted to buy us to pick us up, they had to pay them like $300,000 and points on the record. It was just this unbelievably bad deal that somebody would have to really want to make to pick us up. And if not, we had to wait seven years until we were um, out from under that contract. So we kind of, we did this without a manager. We signed it, but at the time when we were signing it, it seemed like the right thing to do. Right. It, it seems completely like the right thing to do. So I can't really, we, it's not like we can kick ourselves, <laughs> but we thought was the right thing to do. But it really turned out to not be good. But we thought that Priority, well, great, they have a lot of money, and they're going to put it behind us. We're their band. They need to, they want to break. I mean, it all sounded like a really good plan. Right. And it just turned out to be not a good plan. They dumped the whole thing, their whole rock department, and and then that horrible like stip- stipulation. We had meetings with a lot of different labels, but in the end, it was kind of a high price tag to not know what was going on, really. Right. And we weren't that kind of a band. You know, we didn't have that kind of record sales where you'd go, oh, well, let's do it. I don't know. If, you know, it just it was so frustrating. I, and I'm sure the other reason why I saw you so many times is you always seem to tour with bands that I loved. Oh, that's good. Um, so, I mean, I love Sugar and Velocity Girl. Uh, Triple Fast Action, as I mentioned, is one of my favorite bands ever. Um, I think the first time I saw Local H was opening for you. Oh, um, they're, so, they're so good. They're still playing. Yeah, oh, yeah. Although it's funny, because, you know, I mean, they're a two-piece, and, and the drummer's gone. Joe's gone. You're kidding. The drummer's got He was an amazing drummer. Well, it's funny. He's been gone for a while, probably about eight or nine years, but they're, the new drummer is Brian from Triple Fast Action, so... Oh, wow. The incestuous cool. Chicago circle kind of works its way around. Well, what about Not A Surf? They were on that tour was, as well. Yeah, Not A Surf. And um, did you do, uh, Triple Fast Action was with the Figs? Is yes. that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and, and, and Not A Surf is still playing. God, they're making yeah. a great album. And you have my, my Dalvo's tours other than the Sugar one, right? 
Right. Right. But, I mean, really, that just meant our agents <laughs> maneuvered that. Right. <laughs> Whatever it took. <laughs> and what, where, like, so is Linda in Georgia now, or did she move out to L.A.? I'm, I'm going to go have dinner with her as soon as we get off. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, she moved back to Atlanta, and uh, I moved to Seattle, and I stayed there till 2003, and then I came back to Atlanta, and we started... Um, playing and, and writing a record, and that's when Mouthfield came out, around 2005. So that's kind of been what we've been doing. Just, it's taken a while, that's for sure, to write, but... <laughs> yeah. But it, I don't see us, you know, stopping. <laughs> so at the end of the day, though, uh, no regrets from from any of the, the Magnapop days? Anything, anything you would have done differently, or...? You know, I, 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 maybe I would have attempted to pick up a couple different balls that were in the air. If, if only I had knowledge of what was going to happen, how right. it was all going to come down. But I know that we just worked our asses off, really. You know, and it's really, it's hard to do. You're on the road all the time. So you lose kind of your relationships at home, don't have the same balance that they used to. And it's just hard. You're trying to please a lot of people and, and you never really get time to recover i don't know i wouldn't i can't think i can't say i'd do anything differently that's my dream definitely is to be a working musician so but um you know with it with the hindsight that i have i'm not nah i can't say i would i think it with everything we did we did our with our best intentions and our eyes wide open so you know yeah. we didn't jump into anything cool so i can't say that i'd do anything differently other than maybe like I said, maybe taking advantage of a couple different opportunities. Right. All right. That was awesome, Chip. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, no problem. She was uh, very excited to have this opportunity to talk about Magna Pop. Now, it, it was cool that you got to talk to her because I actually found a quote from her. Um, I'm not sure from what era of the band, but the, I think it was around the hot boxing um, probably doesn't help era. She said, pop is where it's at. And I heard the term power pop used a lot when researching this band. But I don't feel like this is a power pop band. What What do no. you guys think? Not at all. Yeah. No. I, I don't and when, I, when you name your band Magna Pop, I mean, I'm thinking, oh, wow, okay, they're just, they're going to wear it on their sleeves. No, I, I didn't get that at all. I wanted more pop. <laughs> is it simply because there's not huge hooks when you get to those choruses yeah i mean you gotta i think to do the power pop thing you, the vocals gotta be there you gotta be either you gotta have the harmony um working like uh you know the wanna dies album that we, we reviewed where they bring in that that second female vocal and it just it creates a chorus automatically or you gotta have the melody there that that is, that is super hooky and, and memorable they don't have either of those two things so, just on vocals alone, they're not power pop. But kind of going back, Tim, to what you were asking. So, I did see him, too, in a headlining tour. Um, and I can't remember the year. And it might have been um, from the Rubbing Doesn't Help tour. I have to go back and do some research. They played at the Newport and uh, Local H Open Forum. And 
as I, as I was going back and looking at their touring partners, um, it makes total sense that I love this band because, I mean, they toured with Not A Surf, Local H, Triple Fast Action, The Figs, Tuscadero. Um, wow. Yeah, and, and I saw them, like I said, with Local H and with Sugar. Um, I was already a fan, but, but I can just imagine me in 1995, me being super excited that, that they were playing with Local H. It just seemed like really four unique. Um, it, it, the songwriting core was Linda and Ruthie, and by by introducing other band members, I'm not sure if that helped or hurt the band in the long run. Well, that's the difference between I how how bands take all the unique pieces and put them together is really the key, and some of them put them together in a way where they're not enough of one thing and a little too much of something else so now I think for us sometimes those kinds of bands end up being some of our favorites but in terms of commercial appeal that ends up being a barrier so in the case of them they're probably not quite pop enough to be pop and they're quite not quite hard rock enough to be hard rock and they're not quite alternative enough to be alternative and while I think you know people like again people like us find all of that that balance that they're trying to hit interesting I think commercially that becomes hard to sell as where do you put it is that and the um is that the not death knell but is that what we would say is why this band didn't break through as a you know a mainstream rock act that they well, were you know all those where, things where do they go yeah, with, the, and, with the albums after that where does the sound go um, for the uh, for the couple albums after this? Chip, you'd be better to speak on that because I yeah. haven't actually listened to the next album. I've heard Mouthfeel, but that came out in the 2000s, so we're not going to be reviewing that. I did enjoy that one. Um, but what what we'll get to it eventually, but let's jump ahead to Rubbing Doesn't Help. So, Rubbing Doesn't Help. I'm looking at it was it was '96. It was only a couple years later, and um, um, yeah, I kind of remember being being. I don't think big steps forward. I think it was kind of what I expected. Uh, pretty natural follow up, I would say. Um, similar sounding songs. They did have they did have uh, kind of like Texas. They had um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the song "Open the Door." That was the, the single off that record. And I have no idea if it charted or not, but I know that they made a video for it, but it was definitely a kind of slower, um, a slower song. Uh, but then, this, once again, the, the album kicks off with kind of this, this heavier song called This Family. Um, so yeah, it, it seemed to be pretty natural progression, I think. And I remember listening to uh, Mouthfield. I remember the guitars sounding really good on that record. Um, that was what drew me into actually wanting to review this. Um, I think the guitars sound really good on this album, and yeah, they drew me in too. You know, the first the first track when, when the guitars come in, you know, I was pretty optimistic um, that it was going to go good places.
crazy, but in, in my alternate universe where Columbus was Seattle and Scrawl was the band that Sub Pop signed, not Nirvana, it seems to me that Magna Pop is kind of would have been what a label was looking for to take Scrawl sound and make it commercially viable for people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much you guys are familiar with Scrawl and how, how much you know of them. I certainly, like I said, I don't think that, that Magna Pop is a is a carbon copy of Scrawl by any sense. But I, like I said, in my alternate universe where labels are looking for the next Scrawl, Magna Pop would have been a a, a, a comfortable radio type, radio friendly type band that Scrawl fans would have and should have liked. Unfortunately, Scrawl wasn't Nirvana, and so. It sounds like a nice universe. I would like to um, live in that universe. <laughs> but unfortunately, I only know the last Scrawl record, and since we started this, I have avoided listening to all other Scrawl records in anticipation of eventually reviewing them and not wanting yeah. to um, get into them before I have the other 500 records I have to listen to. We're no longer allowed to enjoy music like normal humans. We have to now avoid hey, music. You know the other thing about... Like, this whole time period and, and we could probably talk for hours about this but there was also that that period of time like between what 94 and 97 ish where female fronted alternative rock bands were big oh yeah and they were out touring and headlining and you know towards the once like foreign and limp biscuit took over and dominated airways like the female fronted rock band i, I think foreign and limp biscuit are as much to blame for magna pop and all the other female-fronted bands uh, falling off the radar and breaking up. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I mean, you had Hole for Assault, Magnet Pop, Tuscadero, uh, Liz Fair, Letters to Cleo. I mean, I have... Belly. Yeah, yeah. For all Trident. those bands. Yeah. Tracy Bond. I'm like, yeah, yeah. That, that whole time period, that, that was a really strong period of time for female fronted band and not many not many of them survived out of that Mm-mm. yeah it's kind of it's kind of amazing when you start listing them off how many there were at the time it, i mean you sort of noticed it but it wasn't i don't remember it being like huge de- like you didn't you weren't shocked by it it seemed really natural and a lot of them were pretty and that's some pretty good songs and stuff that's not even mentioning some of the more underground stuff which would be like babes in toyland and l7 and those were a lot of the pioneers that of the early 90s that sort of made it okay for alternative rock to be interpreted by a female frontman or front woman um (laughs) you know i mean hole was essentially ripping off babes in toyland down to the guitar playing and makeup and weird baby doll dresses and stuff like that that's, that's where holes getting all that so um, but i think it's a good point of uh you know chip saying about that new metal stuff it really changed the landscape in terms of all of a sudden the female perspective on alt rock you know it, it got completely just you know blown out by sort of butt rock misogynistic 
you know, goofball rap stuff that those two just could not coexist. I mean, you couldn't play. That I think at that point, like female-fronted alt rock got marginalized to be Lilith there, right? And then right. became like Cheryl Crow and the lighter side of all that, and the bands that were really trying to do a hard rock thing with it, and really try to do some some things that were edgy and a little bit heavier. It, there was no space for them anymore because it all got eaten up by you know corn and biscuit and all these bands that you couldn't put those you couldn't put those two groups together on a radio station those, those right. two uh, types of music so it was like you pick they picked one commercial radio picked one and basically all the other bands got forgotten I think looking at my notes here on track 10 I have uh I'm sorry 12 what song is that it's a uh, get it right it's the shortest song on the album the minute 50. <laughs> it's a uh, it sounds like thrash played by 10 year olds <laughs> <laughs> which makes me want to go back and listen to it again because i don't know why i wrote that but that's what i wrote also noticed they fall into a i think one of the things for me that that was a major um strike against them is they really do fall into the um the formula of the palm muted verse and then the open chorus and i think it's like the first five four or five songs of the album let's do that every song the song starts off with the sort of the muted guitar and then when the chorus comes she like plays the full chords or kicks into the distortion so it just uses that super rudimentary alt rock like soft loud soft loud soft loud thing way too much on this album that it, you know when you get when you start listening to this many 90s albums as we are that's one of those things that just it stands out right away as being, um pretty predictable yeah unfortunately bands have not figured out how to not sound like the pixies yet <laughs> so Usually it's on their first album where they follow fall into that trap mm-hmm. and work their way out of it. With we've done it. Yeah, everybody does it. So, all right, I think a, an hour spent on uh, hot boxing is probably it's a good amount of time. Um, Want to thank Chip for once again joining us. Chip, do some pimping. Where can people read? your thoughts on a weekly or daily basis uh weekly on donewaiting.com um sometime in the very near future if not already you should be able to pick up the new issue of the big takeover uh with the pains of being pure at heart on the cover um i think i have i wrote about 25 reviews for that issue so that is on newsstands if not now then in the, within the next week or two my favorite rock and roll periodical in the country the big takeover worth every dime Absolutely. that needs to get moved to the I- the ipad that would be awesome 
I don't buy <laughs> magazines anymore. Chip, you need to get Jack Rabbit on the on the phone. Get him up on the horn. Tell him to get an iPad edition out. Yeah. Not, a bad, not a bad idea. That would look sweet. And, uh, of course, there's uh, Atomic Ned. Your homepage. Or... Yeah, which I need to update a little more often. So uh, we'll keep that one on the download right now. Okay. So done waiting and, and big takeover. And... And we have to thank Ruthie Morris. Yes, absolutely. Thank you to Ruthie Morris for indulging us a bit of nostalgic uh, visiting giving us her time for this episode. And someday, someday, someday she'll be a trivia answer for the first interviewee on the Dig Me Out podcast. Yes. <laughs> well, when we when we put out the official Dig Me Out Trivial Pursuit edition, uh, that will be one of the questions. Along with what band do Jay and Tim consistently refer to when discussing overly long songs? <laughs> I know the answer to that one. Yes. And uh, I think that wraps it up. Thank you, everybody, for checking us out. Be sure to stop by the webpage, the homepage, uh, digmeoutpodcast.com for videos and links and things of that nature. Be sure to stop by our iTunes page to do some kind words so that someday Steve Jobs will put us on the front page and then we'll get like a billion downloads and we'll start rolling dough because that's how it works. Friend us on Facebook. And friend us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. You can go in and uh, comment about how off we are on some of these reviews. Yeah. We don't get enough negative feedback, actually. Uh, we need some vitriol spouted at us because it's all a love fest right now. And... Um, Quite frankly, it's harming my self-esteem. I'm starting to feel too good. And grow up in the Midwest, you need to be even keeled. Yeah. Right now, I'm flying a little high. But it'd just be the like it in it. The worst thing a kid from uh, Buffalo or Cleveland can get is too much self-confidence. No, you don't want that. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's awful. All right. Thanks again, Chip. Thanks, Jay. And we're out. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. That's 57 minutes. Have fun editing that.